Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. A lot of stuff on today's program. We've got some serious stuff, some policy matters to talk about. And then as we get closer to 3 o'clock, we'll kind of lighten it up. Some interesting takes as well. We start off the program on a sort of a sad note of Joanne Rogers, who was the wife of Fred Rogers, of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He passed away in 2003, I believe, um, due to stomach cancer. Um, she she was the loving wife who actually really kept his memory alive. Not that you need that much help in keeping Mr. Rogers' memory alive, but um, she just recently passed away, uh, just the other day, at the age of 92. Um, she was uh, she did some voices on the program. Um, she played a couple characters and things like that. But mostly, again, she just she was I think over the course of the last you know, decade or two. I mean, she was one who was kind of the, the gatekeeper for for Fred Rogers, and she was the memory keeper and things like that and provided some of that inspiration. You know, Mr. Rogers has had a bit of a renaissance over the course of the last couple of years. Um, there's there's the documentary that came out, Won't You Be My Neighbor, in 2018, and then um, she was the one who actually signed off on allowing Tom Hanks to portray her husband in the uh, movie that came out, A Beautiful Day in the neighborhood um, back in 2019 and she was one of the consultants on the set to make sure that they got everything right so uh, Joanne Rogers who was a wonderful woman in her own right and really instrumental I think in helping carve out all the great things that the Mr. Rogers program did um, passes away at the age of 92 okay Joe Biden takes over next Wednesday and he's already in the process of of rolling out some of his programs and I, I lump some of this in, never let a good crisis go to waste. So he, he's announced he, he wants a, an economic relief program. Now, this is on top of the economic relief program that was was already approved by by Congress. And there's a number of elements of it. He's putting the price tag almost two trillion dollars. And he says it's going to be paid for largely by borrowing. You know, to the extent that the government has to come up with money to do this, we are we're going to borrow the money. We're going to increase the national debt. All right. And there's a number of aspects of this program. And we're we're going to talk about a couple of them. One of them is that he wants to increase the the stimulus payments. If you qualify for stimulus payments, you've probably already gotten 600 bucks in your checking account. He wants to give you an extra $1,400. And he's already getting heat from the left. AOC, for example, is saying, what do you mean you're going to give $1,400? You you promised 2,000. And of course, the 1,400 is on top of the 600 dollars that people already got, equaling 2,000. She's saying, no, it, it should be it should be 2,000 dollars on top of the, the 600. He wants unemployment insurance to be supplemented an extra 400 dollars a week, and he wants that to be continued through the end of September. We'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the things that he wants as part of this COVID relief package, he wants to increase. The federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. 
Now, right now, the, the federal minimum wage has been stuck at like $7.25 an hour. A number of states, including Wisconsin, have higher minimum wages than that. And the way the law works is if you do business in a particular state, it, it's, it's whichever is higher. If the federal minimum wage is higher than the state minimum wage, then the federal minimum wage applies and, and vice versa. In most cases, state minimum wages are higher than that $7.25 an hour. What Biden wants to do is jack up the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. He also wants to get rid of what they call the, the tipped exception. And, and what that means is uh, for restaurants, For example, restaurants are largely exempt from the minimum wage if the employees are tipped, because in in many cases, and we've talked about this, the the fact that the employees, if you're good, you know, you're you're making more than $15 an hour based on, on tips. Biden also wants to eliminate the tipped minimum, eliminate the exception. So employees would have to make if you're a server for example you you now you'd be guaranteed 15 bucks an hour how that all plays out with regard to doing away with tips that's a whole nother story the estimate is that by increasing the federal minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour even the Biden administration acknowledges that at least 1.3 million people who would otherwise be working are going to lose their jobs because employers are going to have to cut back. So, I mean, they acknowledge it's going to be at least 1.3 million. My guess, it's going to be a lot higher than that. Let's tee this up. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think, to me, it's interesting that, on the one hand, we are looking at an economy that has been devastated by the the pandemic. Businesses closing right and left. And I'm not talking about just small businesses. I'm talking about medium-sized businesses. I'm talking about large businesses. Businesses closing right and left. People, millions and millions of people being thrown out of work because their employers, you know, can't make a go of it. And now we're going to turn around and say, okay, all you employers, if you're still in business, we're going to expect you to increase the salaries of people to 15 bucks an hour. And as we've talked about before, let, let's understand this. There, there is a trickle up effect. If you have somebody who's working for $13 an hour, and you know, now you have to start everybody at 15, well, you, you can't as a practical matter, pay that person who's been there for three years who's making 13 bucks an hour. You, you, you can't bring them up to the same level as the new hires at 15. You're going to have to pay them more than that. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I don't begrudge people making money, and $15 an hour times a, a full work year turns out to be thirty-one, thirty-two thousand bucks a, a year. All right, so I understand, and you're, you're not going to buy a Learjet on that. But the problem becomes, who's going to pay for this as a practical matter? And if we're talking about an economy that you're trying to get started again, you're trying to get people working at jobs, how in the world does now mandating a $15 an hour minimum wage and also 
Let's face it, in order to pay that $15 an hour minimum wage, one of the things that the employers are going to have to do is what? Increase their costs. So other people who've been struggling, now you're going to have to pay more for these goods and services. 855-616-1620. Is this the time for this? Or is this an example of never let a good crisis go to waste? Let's throw the $15 an hour federal minimum wage increase in with our COVID relief package. 855-616-1620. We discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jeff, McDonald's is a multi-billion dollar corporation. They can afford to pay $15. Did I mention they're a multi-billion dollar corporation? Okay, well, first of all, if you want to use the McDonald's example, most of the McDonald's restaurants are not owned by McDonald's. They're owned by franchisees who are our local business people. All right, so it's it's not McDonald's that's paying this. But let's let's enter the real world here. Let's talk about, for example, oh, I don't know, the, the local grocery store that's now going to have have to pay I don't know it's it's stockers you know starting st- salaries you know it's stockers it, it's sort of this basic thing they're going to have to pay 15 bucks an hour and so what's going to happen the price of groceries is going to go up because they're going to have to do that the local hardware store that hires I don't know the the young people to help you find the widgets that you need when you go in there they're going to have to pay 15 dollars an hour that's going to get passed on to the consumers or What's likely to happen and what even the Biden folks acknowledge is going to happen is that people are going to lose their jobs. The businesses are going to say we can't afford to do this. So, you know, we had 10 people that are working. Okay, now we're going to have to get rid of two in my example. So we're going to have eight people working. Yes, you're going to make a little bit more money. But, you know, 20 percent of the workforce, boom, gone. And my point is to do this when American business has been absolutely devastated over the course of the last year with the pandemic, to me makes absolutely no sense at all. And I understand it panders to a certain part of the base here. You know, we're, we're going to raise up the level of wages. But what is the consequence of doing that? And do you do this in America in 2021 when we're already looking at huge unemployment? All right, let's start with David in West Bend. David, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Sure. Um, I got a, I got a couple of major points. One is uh, I have a business, and so did my wife. And last year we had one of our best years ever in construction. There's a lot of construction companies that made a ton of money on the PPE package that came out and took it, and then now they don't have to pay it back or get taxed on it. So they gave us money for the employees to pay our employees because mm-hmm. they were slow, and now they want to increase the payment of minimum wage for our employees. It kind of doesn't make any sense because you need the businesses in place in order to keep people working. Right. We would lose our other business because we cannot afford to pay our employees $15 an hour. Not to mention, most of our employees are younger adults, people that do not have any education. Now you're going to tell them people in the business, you cannot hire them people to get them used to the workforce. Now you have to hire older people. So now that teaches our younger generation they're not going right. to be able to work because you can't, you can't right. pay them. Well, also, I mean, David, it's, you know, we live in a supply and demand sort of world. If, if Let's talk about some of the most basic entry-level work. I mean, and, and we don't even need to pick it. But, but on an objective level, if the basic entry-level unskilled work 
objectively, if it's worth $10 an hour, if that's what you need to do to go out and to find somebody who can perform this particular service, and it's worth $10 an hour, and the government says, well, no, David, you got to pay 15 bucks an hour, how, how is how is that that right? It's a, it's a market economy. We should pay what jobs are, are worth, not have the government say a $10 job has now suddenly become a $15 an hour job because... We want to turn an entry-level job into a family-sustaining job when it's not intended to be that way. Right. Not to mention the contracts that we're given now that won't get put into play four months, five months, six months from now are now at a set number. They're all going to have to get changed because labor is going to double. And so all the contracts are going to be it's going to it's going to make the economy go into a recession even right. worse. Right. Now, thanks for your call. I appreciate it, Jeff. I'd gladly pay more to help my fellow community members, and hopefully, people would be more helpful if they are making more. Um, okay, it, it's not a that that's that's wonderful that you know somebody might say, oh, I'm 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 willing to pay more money. Okay, that that that's great, but it also. You're divorced from reality in the sense that you have all sorts of people who have been struggling. You have all sorts of people who are already unemployed who are trying to get back into the workforce. They're trying to find jobs. Now we're going to say to the employers, all right, if if you're going to hire these people who are looking for jobs, what we want you to do is we want you to pay them more than ostensibly the job is worth in a free market society. And and I, I understand that some people might be willing to pay more, but tell that to all the businesses that ended up closing because people didn't patronize them over the course of the last nine months. I guess one of the things, I, I understand the arguments one way or the other, oh, we, we want people to make more money. But the people who make that argument don't understand that that money has to come from somewhere. You don't, if, you're a, if you're a business owner, you don't go out and rattle the money tree and all of a sudden all sorts of extra dough falls in. I'm just making a point that particularly at this point in time in American history to try to tag in a minimum wage increase as part of a COVID relief bill is is going to have exactly the opposite effect if we're trying to get businesses back on their feet and hiring people. Let's talk to Mike in West Bend. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. Um, I guess a couple points first. First and foremost, the, I think the big picture issue here is leave it to the Democrats to figure out a way to generate revenue for their, their government and for their programs. I mean, think about all of the extra tax dollars that come in on a $15 an hour wage as opposed to a, a $7 an hour wage. And all the tax dollars that they can now collect from non, or non-tipped employees, all those cash tips that don't go reported will now be mandated into a a minimum wage and that that revenue source is massive and can help fund all of these programs that the government so lovingly provides for us and uh well, well, God bless the government. Well, you know, I, I think thanks. I think it's going to be interesting because when when we've talked about this before, um, I, I've I've taken calls from people who work in the hospitality industry, who who depend on tips, and when the question has always been, would you rather have a, a guaranteed minimum wage of fifteen bucks an hour, or would you rather work on on the tips? I would say 80 to 85% of the phone calls I get from people who work in the service industry are, no, we, we want the tips because they understand they can make a lot more money 
on, on the tips. If, if you're good and you're right at the right place, now I understand it might be different in certain places, but, but in general, the people in the hospitality industry say, we, if the choice is 15 bucks an hour or, you know, let us work for the tips, they're going to take tips. Now, my guess is that what's going to happen is if, let's take the restaurant thing, if, if you remove the minimum wage there, what's going to happen is you're going to have to raise your prices. That, that's just the, that's just reflective of that. If you're going to, if you're going to now have to pay servers $10 more an, an hour, um, and that's coming out of your bottom line, you're going to have to raise prices. And as a result of raising prices, you're going to have to tell the customers, oh, by the way, we now pay $15 an hour. That is going to dramatically change the entire tipping structure. And my guess is a lot of people in the hospitality industry are going to scream bloody murder about that because actually they're better off with the $2 or $3 minimum wage floor that there is for, um, for again, the service industry like that, but then the, the, the unlimited tips. I, I, I just, I mean, be careful what you wish for, because of particularly in the, the area of hospitality, I'm not sure people in the hospitality industry want this if the logical effect of it is all of a sudden you're going to have your tips dramatically reduced. Back with more in just a minute. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. It's a couple of texts. Jeff, great idea. This is said sarcastically. My tenants are going to be so thrilled now that I'm going to be raising their rent to cover the new minimum wage that I have to pay for my employees um, because all our costs are going to go up. Guess what? They can't afford the rent now. Great idea, Mr. President-elect. Where should they move to? This is not a well-thought-out plan. Jeff, entry level at 15 bucks an hour escalates all salaries. Results, the consumer pays more, employees get laid off, and businesses fail. Leads to increased dependency. Only the political class ends up thriving. Um, well, well, yeah. I guess that that's the point. And, and some people are saying, oh, how can you begrudge people you know, making $31,000 a year? It's not that I begrudge people making $31,000 a year. It's that you have to understand the, the economic realities of this. The $31,000 a year, that, that, that wage comes from businesses, many of which have gone under which is why we have the unemployment crisis that we have, and many businesses which are just holding on by their eye teeth. So if all of a sudden you say, okay, we're going to take the entry-level wages, or let's, let's, let's forget $7.50 an hour, because I don't think there's too many people really paying $7.50 an hour. At least in Wisconsin, I don't think you can find too many employees. that. I mean, I talk to people who, for example, own fast food restaurants, and they say, we're not talking about fast food. What do you mean minimum wage? We we have to pay $10, $12 an hour just to get people that we, we'd want to work for us and hope that they come back. But if all of a sudden, let's say you're paying somebody $10 an hour for a basic entry-level job that's worth $10 an hour, you now you know add 50% to your labor costs, jump it up to 15 bucks an hour, that, that money has to come from somewhere. And where is it going to come from? It's either going to come from massive price increases to your customers, and if the customers don't go along with it, then what happens? Well, then you go under, or it's going to come from saying, all right, I just can't, 
afford to pay the, these wages. So we're, if the money's got to come from somewhere, so we're going to either cut jobs or we're going to, you know, cut benefits or all these different things. It's the unintended consequences. If nothing else, separate this proposal from the COVID package, the COVID relief package, and let's debate it on its merits instead of let's throw this in there and try to sneak a $15 minimum wage through as part of, gee, we, we need pandemic relief. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, there's a number of other things that are rolled into this 1.9 T as in trillion dollar COVID relief package that Joe Biden is introducing, is going to be trying to push through Congress in its entirety um, shortly after he takes over from office. And it's going to be interesting to see because this is going to be debated at the same time, for example, the Senate is apparently going to be carrying on with the impeachment trial of, of President or soon to be former President Trump. So they're, they're going to be trying to do a lot of stuff at once. Once one of the things that Biden wants to do is to increase the federal unemployment supplement to $400 a week and allow it to run through next September. Now, let me back up here for a second. After the pandemic hit in March, you had an unprecedented devastation of the American economy. You had businesses that were closing right and left or businesses that were scaling back right and left. Some of it was because of government restrictions, shutting down non-essential businesses. Some of it was because even if the business wasn't required to shut down, consumer demand just completely went away because people sheltered in place. Some of it was because people who would have otherwise spent money well, they, they lost their jobs or became, you know, economically uncertain. So it was this like vicious cycle. So what happened in March is you had an economic relief program which said, look, we we want to we want to bail out the people who have suddenly lost their jobs. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have the federal government send out a supplement in addition to the state unemployment benefits. We're going to send a $600 per week supplement to people who have lost their jobs. All right. Now, the problem, of course, with that is that by the time you add that 600 bucks in and whatever you're getting from the state for a decent percentage, certainly not everybody, but a decent percentage of people, you make more money by not working than you do by working. And so who in their right mind, if, if, if you have, if you have a job that you don't particularly enjoy and you're able to make more money staying home than going to work, people aren't going to go to work. And that's what they found was happening. So that $600 a week supplement expired as part of the most recent covid relief bill what they did congress said okay well look we're we were mindful of the fact that the six hundred dollars was creating a disincentive for people to go back to work and by the way we also recognize that the economy is starting to come back and by the way we also recognize that that employers who are trying to hire well they you know they're, they're being turned down sometimes by their by employees who, who who don't want to go back or people who aren't seeking jobs because again they can make more money so Congress said okay here's what we're going to do we're going to give not 600 bucks but we're going to give three hundred dollars a week 
additional federal unemployment insurance and federal unemployment benefits and we're going to run that to march so that'll be like like a year from the start of the pandemic as part of biden's plan he wants to increase the unemployment benefits to 400 bucks a week on top of whatever people are getting from the state and he wants to run that for nine more months. He wants to run it through September. So I guess that would be eight months, you know, by the time it ultimately got passed. 400 bucks a week as a supplement to whatever state unemployment you're getting and run it to September, which means for somebody, for example, who lost their job last March, they'd be able to be collecting that supplement all the way until September of 2021. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this too much and is it too long? And is it creating a disincentive for people to go back to work if you know that you can make as much or almost as much money by not working, not actively seeking a, a job as you do if you go back and you work at a job, especially if it's it's an entry-level sort of job or a job that's really physically hard or it's a job that you particularly don't like. What is the incentive to try to go and work at one of these places if, you know, you're getting 400 bucks a week and you know you're going to get that through September? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, nobody's going to want to go back to work at all, period. Well, that, that's not true because, I mean, look, I, I understand if there are there are people who lost their jobs for whom the $400 a week plus whatever you get on, on state, that, that they, they made more, maybe substantially more, by, by working. And, and, and those people folks are, are going to want to try to replace that income. But at the same time, if, let's say, you're in a situation where you can make just about the same for working or not working, well, then, you know, who in their right mind, like I say, is going to going to want to go back to work? Um, Jeff, um, let's see, uh, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's see. Um Having been laid off since June voluntarily, I'm 43-year-old. I feel retired. I love it. Keep it coming. I've been to Florida for a few months. Um, you know, okay, I, I don't know if they're being sarcastic or not, but the bottom line of all this is, again, there, there's a lot of what they find and what they have found in the past, because remember back in 2008 and 2009, where we had the continuation of unemployment benefits, they typically used to be six months, and then they went to a year, and then they went to a year and a half. And what they found is, once you started ending the unemployment benefits, miraculously, people started finding work and, and going back to jobs. And at some point in time, you have to, you don't want to incentivize people not wanting to go back to work. I understand last March, it was an unprecedented time. I, I get it. And that's why 
I didn't complain about the $600. I mean, you wanted people suddenly were out of work. It, it happened, boom, like like lightning, and, and you needed to help people get through it. Okay, that's last March. You know, now we're a year, almost a year into this pandemic, 10 or 11 months into this pandemic, and the question becomes, how long do you go on with this? At, at some point in time, don't you have to figure out what your plan B is, or is it just, okay, I'm not going to actively seek work, or I'm not going to take a job that... I, I don't really want to do when I can make more money not doing it. Let's talk to Alan and Racine. Alan, you're on WTMJ. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Alan. Hi. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it pains me to say this, but it, it's one of those things. I, I wasn't raised this way, and I've never I've busted my butt my whole life. I'm 54 years old, and if you're gonna, if I'm gonna get $750 a week or whatever it is, for unemployment with everything. And then plus the, the state insurance, I mean, it used to cost me $130 a week for insurance for my family plan. There, there's, it, 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 it's unfortunate. And the only reason I don't feel really guilty about it is because I've never really had a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but, uh, right. There's a thin line between I'm a good guy and, and I'm, I'm dumb. <laughs> well, well, right. I mean, look. I, I hate to say it, but. It, it is what it is. I, no, it is. Absolutely. No. Right. I mean, I, I mean, look, I, I, I understand. Look, I, I have been blessed in my entire life uh, for whatever reasons. Maybe I'm just just lucky. I have I have for most of my adult life. I have been I, I've been I've gotten to, I've been paid to do jobs that I would have probably done for free. Okay, and I, and and that's that is a blessing. I understand I'm unique, and I appreciate that. Um, if I were working at a job, I hate it. I mean, I, actually, one of the reasons I, I I always wanted to be a lawyer. One of the reasons I went to law school is when I was in college and when I was in high school, I worked at a lot of jobs. I I hated, and, and I knew I I didn't want to do that. So if I was in one of those jobs that I I just I, I hated, <laughs> I, I mean, I I understand if the choice is G Jeff. You can do this job that, that you hate or that's just physically taxing or, you know, you, you don't like your boss. Or if, if this was a job that for whatever reason you didn't like and you can make almost as much money by not working as by working, well, I, I'm not going to aggressively go and, and look for the job. Now, I understand some people are saying, well, Jeff, if you get called back, you, you've got to go. But, okay, what about the, all the businesses that have closed down? And, and that's my guess is that's probably the majority of people. It's not necessarily people who've been laid off temporarily. At this point in time, it, it's businesses that have closed down or, or they're, they're just gone. They're out of work. So it's not a question of calling back people. It's a question of, all right, how aggressive do you want to be pounding the pavement looking for a, a job that might be similar to the one that you had? And again, if it's a job that you don't like, if you feel that you're in a dead-end career, this, like Alan's talking about I, I don't think it makes you a bad person I, I'm not faulting the human nature of this but I at the same time from the perspective of society given the fact that this money has to come from somewhere and that's for everybody who says well how, how can you oppose you know throwing out a lifeline to people I, I don't I, and I didn't back in March that's what that 600 bucks was but now we're talking about benefits for a year and a half at, at some point in time isn't there going to be a reckoning? And one of my texters makes the point. I, we've we've had a moratorium on evictions, so you you have you know people that have fallen, people who rent, and who have mortgages. 
in some cases haven't paid their rent for the better part of a year. All right, that, that's going to come due at some point in time. Well, where is that money going to come from? Or do we just continue to say, okay, you don't have to pay your rent? In Wisconsin, you have not had to pay your utilities for going on a year and a half. Remember, you had every year in the winter, they have that moratorium that kicks in, and you can't cut off utilities from, what, November 1st to April 1st or or something like that. Well, you know, we we waived that this last year. So, you know, you have people that, in theory, haven't paid a dime on their utility bill for the last 12, 13, 14, 15, 15 or 16 months, and that's going to run through the spring. At some point in time, you're going to get to a point where they owe a year and a half of utilities. Those are going to come due. At some point in time, you got to think that they're going to stop with the moratoriums, and the, the utility companies are going to start trying to collect. Tell me where people is going to get or get get that money. At some point in time, you, you've got to dial back the dole and figure out, all right, we, we've got to incentivize people going back to work unless we're, we're just going to have the government keep printing up money, keep going further in debt, and just keep bailing out people you know, time after time after time. It, it's a balancing act. But, okay, through next September, 400 bucks a week on top of the state unemployment things, where is the dough going to come from? This is Jeff Wagner. Here's a really interesting text. Jeff, my mom takes home around $840 every other week working at a hospital kitchen cooking food for patients. She'd be better off to quit and make more off the government. Well, okay, let's let's break that down. If, if she quits... She can't, you know, collect the unemployment. I mean, if if you quit now, if you're fired, if if you just quit your your job, it your they might fight your unemployment that, that's there. It's not like you've lost your job, but but let's let's look at the other thing. Let's say that you know one of the people working with our texter's mother does in fact quit. It creates a job vacancy, so the hospital wants to go out and hire somebody to come, you know. Fill, fill in, cook, cook for the patients or whatever. And they say, okay, well, here, after taxes and after all this stuff, your take-home is going to be 850 bucks every two weeks. And the person looks at that and says, hmm, well, that's less money than I'm getting by being unemployed. Why, why would I... Why would I sign up for that? Why would I come and, and work and work in this kitchen and cook food for patients when I can make more money by, by staying home? See, that's, that's where it becomes the real practical problem of how do you fill these different jobs? And I mean, and look, I, I understand the people that are making that decision, especially if, if, if you're in a job that you don't like or a job that you don't intend to turn into a career or whatever. It's just a job that's a job. All right. If you're going to make just as much by working 40 hours a week, cooking food for people in a hospital, or staying home, you're going to stay home, at least until these run out in September. And who knows, maybe they'll be continued even longer. And I understand some people say, oh, you're this heartless guy, you don't want to help people out. No, you don't. By by encouraging and incentivizing people not to go back to work, long term, I don't believe you help people out. Plus, you create all sorts of problems for the employers who need the services. Back with more in just a couple minutes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. This is a kind of a wrap-up to what we were talking about before. I'm, I'm hearing from a number of people who have worked through the pandemic, 
um, essentially they, they would be the essential workers. So people who worked at the grocery stores, worked at the hardware stores, et cetera, et cetera, who are, are telling these stories about how in retrospect they would have been better off being laid off like some of their coworkers were because they've worked through this whole thing and some of their coworkers were making as much or almost as much as they were by having to work all i'm saying and i'm look i'm i'm not suggesting if people that, that, that the people who aren't rushing back to work are malingerers. I, I get it. I understand. I'm just saying that you cannot create an incentive for people not to actively try to look for work. You, you just cannot do that. And that's what we do by extending unemployment benefits and extending unemployment benefits and extending unemployment benefits. At, at some point in time, those have to end, don't they? Or, or maybe the answer is no, that they, that they don't. All right, let us completely and totally switch gears. This is a bad thing. Bad, bad, bad story. The car crash death rate last year, that would be 2020, the year that a lot of us want to forget, has gone through the roof. And I want to talk to you about why that is. So here, here's the deal. One of the things that happened when the pandemic hit and as we were talking about in the first hour of the program, businesses closed, governments put in these shelter at home, the stay at home orders, etc. And one of the things that happened is that the roads were, were, were just absolutely empty uh, because people people weren't driving to work. To this day, the roads, the traffic congestion, there are not anywhere. Rush hour nowadays is nothing like rush hour was two, uh, two years ago. Why? It's because... Lots of people uh, either aren't working yet or alternatively, they're, they're working at home. They're, they're working remotely, so they're not driving downtown to the office buildings. I mean, how many big companies, for example, just in Milwaukee, do we know that the they essentially shut down their their workplaces in March or April and, and they really haven't opened them up yet? I mean, company after company after company, including high-profile companies. So what you're seeing is that the number of cars on the road is down dramatically. Matter of fact, here's the number. First half of 2020, and, and that's the most recent numbers that I have data for, the number of vehicle miles traveled dropped 264 billion miles. Okay, that's between 2020 and 2019. That's a decline of like 17%. So 17% fewer fewer miles driven, okay, which translates to fewer cars on the road and all those, those types of things. And the cars on the road, they're, they're not being driven as much. Right now, you would expect that with that sort of dramatic drop in miles driven, that there would be a dramatic decrease in the number of traffic accidents and fatalities and things of the like, right? Lots fewer cars, lots fewer miles driven. Well, that's not the case. In the same period that you had a 17% decline in, in miles, what they had is the number of fatalities shrank, not 17%, but only shrank 2%. What that means, and I don't want to get too lost in the numbers, is the rate of fatalities grew 18%. So if you look at it, how many people die per um, 
100 million vehicle miles traveled. The the rate rent from 1.06 to 1.25. So in other words, you, you break that down, and you've had, uh, again, about an 18% increase in the number of traffic fatalities, despite the fact that there's lots fewer cars on the road. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So I have a why question. What is going on here? How how can that possibly, possibly be that you have this dramatic decrease in the number of miles driven and cars on the road, and yet you actually see the rate of fatalities going up dramatically? My theory is that the people that are on the road are driving more irresponsibly than ever. And I think the biggest area is reckless driving and it is speed. I cannot tell you how many times that I am on the road, and it doesn't matter whether it's a interstate or a state highway or a local road. I was, uh, I, yesterday, two days ago, I, I'm, I'm coming back on, on just a, a local road by where I live, and the speed limit is 40 miles an hour. I happen to be in the left lane because I was going to, Coming up in about five blocks, I, I had to get, I had to make a left turn. So I'm in the left lane. There is a car coming up behind me, driving like a bat out of you know where. It's a 40 mile an hour speed limit. I'm, I'm probably going somewhere between 40 and 45. And if this car was, if this car was driving a, a mile, it was driving 80 miles an hour. And, and my guess is you see that all along. Unfortunately, I think one of the things that's happened as a result of fewer cars on the road, it has emboldened. A lot of the people out there, hey, I can drive faster. There's not as many cars around. Here, I can just accelerate. 855-616-1620. What's going on? We discuss in a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Well, well the numbers are in. And if you think it's crazier on the roads than ever, it, it is. Because even though the number of miles driven is down dramatically, the, the number of fatal accidents is up. Or essentially, it, the rate of them is up dramatically as well. Good afternoon, Jeff. I think you hit the nail right on the head. I drive southeastern Wisconsin every day, and ever since COVID began, I've witnessed the most reckless driving I've ever seen in my life. Um, you, you really need to have to be careful out there. Jeff, I'm 61. I've never seen more reckless drivers in my life in all my years combined. And the odd thing is they are not younger folks, but people of all ages. It is scary out there at times. Yeah, it it is. Um, Let's talk to Dana in Milwaukee. Hi, Dana. Hi, Jeff. Boy, you hit one of my hot button issues today, and I had to call in immediately as soon as you started talking about it. Okay. Um, I will concur with both of those texts that you received. It is the Wild West out there on the freeway system. It is. I have never seen driving like this. I'm 61. I have never seen driving like this in all my life. It is out of control. I actually called the sheriff's department about this maybe four or five months ago already. When it was, you know, when we were kind of in the middle of summer already, and it was just so bad. And I said, why are there not sheriffs out stationed trying to nail these people? And she put me through to an actual patrol patrolman mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, the person that was in charge of the patrolman. And he said they just don't have the manpower. Right. He said, we've got one sheriff per, like, 23 miles of road, basically. Right. And he said, if one of them is writing a ticket, then, you know, people are speeding it and nobody's getting caught. Okay. Well, and I well, said, Dana, why do you... more deputies. <laughs> and he said, you would be 
astounded at the tiny amount of money that the sheriff's department actually gets out of a ticket. Because I said, you know, if you hire more, it'll be paid for in spades by all the tickets. Yeah, no, they give you the money up. It goes everywhere. Well, Dana, let me ask you the the, the underlying question. Why do you think it it is this way? If, If the premise is right and the numbers are right, that fewer miles driven, fewer cars on the road, but more reckless driving. Why, why is that? I think it's because people are just so excited that the road is empty. Yeah. There's no cars in their way, and they just think they can just, I, they treat it like it's the Autobahn. You know, I can drive as fast as I want yeah. because there's no traffic jams. Right. And, you're, and, and I, you're, I am so tired of being bullied. I'll have people come right up on my bumper and they're just menacing me. I had a speeding ticket four years ago. I can't afford to get another one. I can't have my insurance destroyed. Right. And I won't do it. I'll go like 62, 63. That's it. You're not getting more than that out of me. These people are doing at least 80. Yeah. No, I, I is, see that all the and time. And they cut around you. They they cut in between cars. I've been cut off. It's, it's terrifying. It I is. just cannot believe the outrageous driving that's going on well, out there. Well, thanks to call, and it's and it's not just you, Dana, because the and that's one of the reasons I wanted to launch into this topic. The objective numbers, you know, bear, bear that out. That the fewer people on the road, but of those people that are on the road, at least a, a certain percentage of them feel emboldened to drive in a more reckless fashion. And 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 let's face it, I mean that that's one of the reasons why you see the number in fatalities. It's because if you're if you're driving 95 miles an hour and you have a wreck, you are much more likely to kill somebody than if you're driving, you know, 40 miles an hour and having a wreck, which isn't to say that somebody can't die if you have, you know, driving 40 miles an hour. But, but it, I mean, speed kills. I think that's the reality. Jeff, I see crazy drivers every morning on Highway 16 from Heartland to I-94. The minimum speed limit is 75, and that's in the right lane. If you're not driving 80 miles an hour or more, stay out of the left lane. The only time Time the speed limit of 65 is obeyed is when a state trooper is in one of the ramps or parked in the center um, turn around. Jeff, don't blame COVID. Blame cancel culture and the resulting disrespect for the law and order. Eh, I, I Look, I, I'm not blaming COVID. I, I'm just, it, it's not a question of, gee, people are doing it because of the pandemic. I, I just think it's people, you, you have a, a certain subset of the drivers who just don't give a rat's rump about anybody else. And here, this is, I, I like Dana's re- reference, I, I want to drive on the Autobahn. This is now, I-94 I, has now become the Autobahn here, and because there, there's it's not being patrolled as aggressively or, or whatever, and there's I, I don't have to weave in and out of traffic as much, there's not as many cars, so I can really rev it up. Let's talk to Brian in Wauwatosa. Brian, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hello, uh, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Bullseye. I mean, it's it's ridiculous to see, especially, I, I have to say, I'd say 894 would probably be the worst. Being a bypass, everybody just wants to get in and around the city as much as you can. And, uh, you know, with, with COVID, you know, not necessarily COVID, I'm sorry, with just uh, less cars on the road, it's like parting of the Red Sea and uh, I'm coming through. It's all about me, me, me. And that's, I've being a, being a delivery guy, I've seen a lot of Milwaukee. It comes down every single day, and, and I'm usually having to be the one that has to call 911 to be a witness to an accident. I've seen it too many times. It's it's enough. Yeah. Okay. So you just think. What, I mean, what what do you think is is going on? Because again, the, the numbers are up dramatically. Is there is is it just fewer cars think, on the road, so it emboldens the people that are out there to drive faster? I think that you, you're perfect. I mean, it's just it's. 
fewer cars in a row. There's more open space. I can go as fast as I want. And like your previous caller, the Autobahn, she's perfect right on the head with that one. <laughs> Thanks, Nicole. Well, there is that element. Jeff, here's a text. People love pushing boundaries, especially the speed limit. If you ask somebody why they do it, you get told to mind your own business. Nobody wants to do the right thing when nobody is watching, and police seemingly don't care about enforcing the law. Now, see, I, I don't. I'm, I'm going to take issue with the last part. I, I don't think it's a question of police don't care about enforcing the law, but I think it, it there, there's only so many police officers to to go around, and, and that's that is just the reality of it. And I think this this type of behavior has become normalized and it's been accentuated because of of COVID. I, and that's and I'm not blaming COVID or excusing COVID. I just think that's kind of the reaction here. Okay, let's talk to Chris in Slinger. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Chris. Um, yeah, I think it comes down to speed kills. And, uh, but I don't know if it's – I think it's probably because there's more room on the freeways because there's less cars. So yep. I'm sure there's people that are absolutely intentionally going faster. But I think it's also just a bit of like, I don't know, ever drive through I-80 in Nebraska or something, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're on a straight and narrow. Yeah. There's no cars around you, and before you know it, you're going 84. You didn't even realize it because yeah. there's just no one around, and it's straight and flat. So, But I think it all comes down to speed because, you know, like um, how we mainly switched to roundabouts in Wisconsin over, like, the last 10, 15 years? Yep. I think that was all, like, you're not going to kill someone going around a roundabout at, like, 15 to 20 miles an hour, but if you go through a red light at 50 and T-bone uh-huh. someone, you know, you're, they're done. So, yeah, I think it's uh, just more space. In the simplest terms, more space on the roads, people – Go faster. Yeah, you probably could make it a scientific formula. No, they, they say and it's, it's funny you talk about that that stretch of of I eighty through Nebraska. And in another life, I used to back in college and stuff. We used to end up driving that a, a lot. And you're right. I mean, it's just it's flat road and it's a straight shot, and it, it is really easy to speed up. But but of course, I I eighty isn't the Marquette interchange. Um, here's a text, Jeff. It's not just on the freeway. I live in Mount Pleasant. Most of the limits are about thirty five an hours. Um, uh, double lane city streets. I drive about 38 and I have people on my bumper cutting me off on the right or left and yelling or making obscene gestures at me. Um, Jeff, I drive from Hales Corners to East Troy. It is a racetrack almost all the time. Um, yeah, Jeff, I think most of the fatalities are intoxicated drivers. <sighs> I, I don't know. I don't. I, that's that's not what my numbers suggest. Uh, and I'm not saying that there's not you know chemically altered drivers that contribute to this. But but I I think I think it comes down to speed. I think it's it's the reckless driving and the increased rates of speed. Jeff, we live in Walworth County and we're dropping off our son at UW Milwaukee. We were approaching the Zoo Interchange on I-43. I was blown away at the reckless driving. Even my 18-year-old was uh, astonished. Well, if you think it's crazier out there, it, it is. That that's just the reality. Now, and and you're starting to see that. You know, our last caller was talking about roundabouts. We discussed this a while back. I I've never been a huge fan of roundabouts, but I'm starting to become born again on this particular issue just because with with roundabouts, the the 
incidence of fatalities and serious injuries goes down dramatically for exactly the reason that, that he said. It's because if you blow through a stoplight or a stop sign at 60 miles an hour and you slam into the side of somebody's vehicle who, who's rightfully where they're supposed to be, um, they're, they're, you know, they've got permission, but somebody who's going 60 miles an hour blows through the red light and you, you hit the side of their vehicle, you T-bone them or whatever. Yeah, the, the chances of really bad stuff happening are, are pretty large roundabouts if you have if you have a collision in a roundabout you you, you can't go through a roundabout at 65 miles an hour you, you know you've, you've got to slow down to go through the roundabout so as a general rule and maybe there's some exceptions but the, the general rule is if you're going to have a collision in a roundabout you're, you're going to have you're going to have a fender bender you're going to have some minor damage that might result in an insurance claim or something like that but you're not going to have fatalities bottom line is and the reason i bring this up is if you think it's crazier out there the new numbers that are out they do support that i think it's speed kills um but for whatever it is you would think that with covid with fewer cars on the road these numbers would go down dramatically no such luck you're listening to jeff wagner on wtmj Ninety minutes left in today's program. A lot of ground to cover. Just a quick programming note: Monday is uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. It is a company. It's a statewide holiday. It's a federal holiday, and it's a uh, company holiday. I'm taking Monday off, and uh, I'm also going to take Tuesday off, just to kind of turn it into sort of a long weekend. I'm back a uh, Wednesday. What's going on Wednesday? Oh yes, it is the inauguration. And um, un- under normal circumstances, there's all sorts of pomp and circumstance that go with with inaugurations and the peaceful transition of power. Uh, th- this year, all bets are off. Who knows exactly what's going to happen? And again, I, I- I've been offering this advice and uh, to 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 people who might be inclined to descend on either Washington D.C. or state capitals to engage in in various forms of of protest over the election results. And I understand I'm probably speaking on talking to, to deaf ears, um, but but my message is, given everything that happened a week ago, and appreciating that people have the right to engage in lawful protest, this is one of those times where my my advice is, is three words: just stay home. It, it, just just stay home. After what happened on Wednesday, you have um, everybody is on their last nerve, uh, uh, and you know. And appropriately so. I, I understand that. So it's one of these things that people are thinking about going out to various state capitals and showing up with Confederate flags and guns and things like that. Just just stay home. And that, that was the same advice I gave to protesters last summer in Kenosha and Madison, especially after the first night where you had in Kenosha where you had the arsons and the lootings and all that. It was just just stay home. I, and, I, and I understand that, you know, people say, well, we've got a right to go out and protest. Yeah, I, I understand. You have a right to protest. But, you know, there's times when, when when maybe you just want to delay that. And just given everything that's going on in this country right now, that the next few days, tense sort of situations. I saw a story. Oh, what did I do this? The National Guard in Washington, D.C., has apparently been authorized to use lethal force. Now, typically... When, when National Guard troops are deployed, typically they're they're there in a a supporting sort of of role. They're there to you know protect the buildings, and they're there to provide uh, again some some backup for local authorities. Now this new order um, apparently authorizes them to 
Um, the, the order guardsmen are trained in the use of lethal and less than lethal force, de-escalation techniques, um, the standard for civil disturbance missions. On January twenty, on January twelfth, twenty twenty one, National Guardsmen were given authorization to be armed in support of the U.S. Capitol Police to protect the U.S. Capitol and individual members of Congress and their staff. And this confirms permission for the guards to use lethal force. Now, I'm not criticizing that 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 order, but I, I see that story. And again, it, I just I I have the, this record. I flashed to Kent State in, in 1970, and I, and I'm thinking you, we don't want to see situations like that. You don't want to ever see a situation where you know National Guard troopers troops would would fire on on crowds. And and I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it, it's like stay home. You know, you don't. You you do not need to take a volatile situation and ratchet it up a couple notches. And I understand there's people who are going to want to engage in protests and all that. That's all well and good. And there's a time and place for everything. But right now, with everybody on edge and everybody on their last nerve, um, stay home and watch the football games. <laughs> that, that, that is kind of my sense of this. All right. The vaccine rollout is taking place. The, the big controversies, and we've talked about it over the course of, of the week, is who should get it and, you know, why is this person getting it ahead of this? So we, we discussed yesterday that some hospitals ha- had decided that they were going to offer the vaccine to employees who don't have anything to do with patients. You know, that's you've got a 32-year-old guy that works in IT, and he's been working remotely. Well, he, he gets to, because he works for the hospital, the hospital's decided to let their employee jump the line. So the 78-year-old lady who's not in the assisted living situation, you know, she gets bumped behind the 37-year-old IT guy. That that That's wrong. But we're starting to roll out more and more of these vaccines, and, and hopefully Hopefully, in the course of the next couple months, you'll you'll get more and more people inoculated because I I think we all should agree that the way out of this pandemic is is to build up that immunity. At the very least, the more people that get the vaccine, the vaccinations, that takes pressure off the healthcare system if fewer people are getting sick and fewer people are being hospitalized. But there is a segment of people out there who are going to make the decision for whatever reason that they're not going to get vaccinated. It just maybe they're just hardcore anti-vaccination people. Maybe they're just people who say, well, you know, it's I I don't have the opportunity to do it. I don't want to wait in line. I don't want to have to worry about having to pay for it. All those different things into this mix walks Dollar General, you know, the, the dollar stores, Dollar General workers who get the coronavirus vaccine will be rewarded with four hours of pay, the company announced the day uh, they announced it on Wednesday. Um, they have become one of the very first major reali- retailers to incentivize inoculations for their their workforce. Um, now, many major brands, the WalMarts of the world, the CVSs of the world, that even though they have a role in the distribution, they encourage their employees to get vaccinated, but they are not mandating it. Dollar General says, look, we, we have, you know, we have about 157,000 employees nationwide. And, you know, we, we recognize that some of our employees, okay, they, even if they want to get it, they, they might, we're not, we're not giving them, we're not bringing in nurses to give the vaccinations at our stores. So they're going to have to travel. 
And, and maybe if they don't have a car, that means they've got to take a bus or some public transportation. Maybe they've got child care costs, et cetera. And so what they say is we don't want our employees to have to choose between receiving a vaccine or coming to work. So what they're doing is they're saying we're going to give you four hours of pay is an incentive for you to get vaccinated. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this is a flat-out great idea, and I think more companies should can give serious consideration to doing this, particularly when you're dealing with employees that are, are lower on the, on the salary scale and things like that and do have to make some of these choices. I think this is is great. And for some of the large retailers that are out there, I, I think they should start looking at this because, candidly, big picture, you know, four hours of pay is, is nothing compared to what the cost could be of the employees getting sick. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I think this is great. And I want to single out Dollar General. And I think this is something that would motivate I think a, a lot of other employees who might otherwise want to get the vaccine, but who choose not to, I think four hours of pay for doing this is a great way to incentivize it. What do you think? 855-616-1620. I'd love to see more companies do precisely this. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Dollar General has one hundred and fifty seven thousand employees nationwide. They've come out and they've said, "Look, we we want our employees to get vaccinated." And unlike some workplaces where the the you you can go to work and you know they'll do the vaccinations, like some of the hospital stuff, Dollar General doesn't do that. But they don't. They don't want to give their employees, and I'm, I'm going to say excuse, and that's that's too strong a word. I mean, I'm not faulting the employees, but they want to give an incentive for their employees to go out and, and get the vaccination. And so what they're saying is we're, we're going to give you four hours of pay. We don't want you, for example, to have to choose between coming to work and getting paid or, you know, going and standing in line to get the vaccination. We're going to give you four hours of pay to, to do this as an incentive. I think that's absolutely great. And I think if, again, if we go back to the basic premise that the more people that get vaccinated and the sooner they get vaccinated, the sooner we get to go back to to baseball games, the sooner we get back to being able to, you know, cozy up to bars, the sooner we get able to be able to you know, fly on airplanes without having to wear masks during the entire you know, segment of the during the entire flight, the sooner we we get to that herd immunity, the sooner we're able to travel internationally. I just saw a story about how, you know, uh, Great Britain is closed, I think, on effective 4 a.m. Monday. They're, they're closing their borders again, period. You know, France has started saying, OK, for anybody that comes in, you've got to show evidence of a of a COVID uh, testing negative for COVID within 48 hours or something like that. The, the, the sooner we get more people vaccinated, 
the, the better it's going to be. And the less, again, excuses that we give to people, oh, it's too inconvenient, oh, I don't want to have to m- miss work or whatever. The, the more we incentivize this, the, the, the better it is. And like Dollar General is not saying, you know, we're, we're going to fire you if you don't get vaccinated, but they're offering them the carrot. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um Jeff, those four hours, is that at minimum wage? <laughs> They're laughing. The interesting thing is that uh, the average Dollar General employee makes a rate of about 10 bucks an hour. So, I mean, it, it's 40 bucks. You know, I, again, it's, it's not like you're going to get rich. It's also not like it's going to break Dollar General, although you take, you know, let's say it's 40 bucks per employee and it it, it, it it gets distributed out over 150,000 employees. Okay, you're, you're starting to talk real money, but at the same time, if it helps keep the employees healthy, I think it's great. Uh, Jeff, I, here's a text. I think it's an excellent idea. Jeff, I agree. I think it's a flat-out great idea. Companies like Dollar General, Walmart, various grocery stores who have seen a huge increase in sales over the last 12 months, are in a great position to provide this type of incentive to their employees. I hope to see more businesses follow in Dollar General's um, um, in, in Dollar General's footprint. Yeah, I think um, th- that's the whole point of this. From business perspective, I, I think it, it's time to step up and it's time to try to do what I'm going to describe the right thing and just. Dist- Try to figure out ways to encourage people to do this. Now, for me, like I've said, I I, I have no pro- question about it. As, as soon as that vaccine, as soon as it's my turn in line, I'm not jumping, you know, lines or anything. As soon as it's my turn, and it's not going to be my turn for quite a while. I mean, I, I'm going to get the vaccine, and Good Karma Brands doesn't have to offer me, you know, an incentive to do it. I'm going to do it because I want to. But at the same time. You know, if companies want to offer that incentive, I think it's a great thing. Like I say, the more people get vaccinated and the sooner they get vaccinated, the sooner we get back to some sense of normalcy. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. You know, it really didn't have to be this way. I understand that President Trump was very, very controversial. But the, the fact of the matter is more than 70 million people voted for him to be reelected. And I, I think there was a lot of residual support that he just, for many people, obviously not all, but for many people, there was, there's a new poll out today, and I understand people don't believe polls, but it shows his approval rating is below 30%. And, and it, you know, it really didn't have to be that way, but I think... His his behavior since the election, the the refusal to accept defeat graciously or otherwise, the the, the constant fomenting of the election was stolen, etc., etc. The the lack of graciousness, I think, really hurt him. And then then of course, you know what happened a week ago Wednesday. The and and whether you believe that what he did was rises to the level of a crime or not, there, there's just no question. It was very very unbecoming, and you know it's resulted in President Trump. I mean, his legacy is shattered. I, I just regardless of what happens, whether he's convicted in the impeachment trial or not. You know, President Trump, as a viable political force, somebody who could seriously run for election again in, in 2024, it, it, it's over. And I understand that the Republican Party has to figure out, you know, where where it is going post-Trump. But 
It, it, these are all self-induced w- wounds, all self-induced wounds, and it didn't have to be that way. I, there's an interesting, uh, CNN has, has an interesting piece. Let me just share a part of it with you. In his final days in office, President Donald Trump has found the parts of the job he loved replaced by cold legal warnings, forced video addresses, and a shrinking circle of downtrodden aides, all anxiously wondering what life will be like after noon on January 20th. Gone are the clicks of flashing cameras. Absent is the roar of a cheering crowd. Instead of a commanding final full week of winning, the president is playing the role of victim and not a gracious leader departing office. Trump has been consumed by the unraveling of his presidency during the last days in office, according to people around him, which included a casual discussion among advisors recently about a possible resignation. Trump shut the idea down almost immediately, and he has made it clear to aides in separate conversations that the mere mention of President Richard Nixon, the last president to resign, was banned. He told one advisor during an expletive-laden conversation recently never to bring up the ex-president ever again. During the passing mention of resigning this week, Trump told people he couldn't count on Mike Pence to pardon him like Gerald Ford did Nixon anyways. Eager for a final taste of the pomp of being president, Trump has asked for a major send-off on Inauguration Day next week, according to people familiar with the matter, before one last presidential flight to Palm Beach. But the signs of his impending departure are everywhere including right outside his window. Inside the building, Trump has been weathering a second impeachment and growing isolation from his one-time allies in sudden, sullen desolation. He's grown more and more worried about what legal or financial calamities may await him when he's no longer president. People who have spoken with him have said, fueled by warnings from lawyers and advisors. He's weighing pardons, including for himself and his family, as he attempts to muster a legal team for another impeachment trial and he is resentful of Republicans who he feels abandon him in his hour of need, including the GOP leaders of the House and Senate. Aides have pleaded with Trump to deliver some type of farewell address, either live or taped, that would tick through his accomplishments in office, but he has appeared disinterested and noncommittal. On Thursday, it was Pence carrying out tasks ordinarily left to a president, like visiting National Guardsmen posted at the U.S. Capitol or visiting White House operators to say farewell. And it goes on and on, and I understand it's CNN, and CNN has never really treated the president very well, but... But but there is a kind of final days aspect to this. And I, I do go back and, and I wonder whether if President Trump had it all to do over again, um, what, wh- whether whether his behavior since election night would have been different, because like I say, I, I understand losing is, is very, very difficult, losing an election, especially if you believe that the election was stolen from you regardless of, of how rooted in reality that is, it's got to be very, very difficult. I, I understand that. But at the same time, you wonder if President Trump had that crystal ball and election night looking forward to you know where we are now, whether he would have done things differently. I honestly don't know. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, very glad to have you with us. All right, let's lighten it up a little bit in this hour. Um, the Over the last couple days, I you know, go home at night, and my, my wife is traveling, and so I, it's me and the dog, as a general rule. With, I have some very nice friends who've invited me out to for dinner and my brother had me over that's all great but but in general it's me and the dog sitting there like watching stuff on on tv and um last night 
I, I stumbled upon there's this thing on on a channel Axios channel or something that that that's um it's a six part documentary on the history of Rolling Stone magazine you know which you know started in the 1960s kind of you know at uh, at the where where the you had the Beatles and all that and and really it, it talked about how the Rolling Stone was was a major in their reviews of music and things like that, it was a kind of a major cultural force while you had, again, you know, rock and roll was, was developing. And it, and it, and it follows them. It, I haven't seen all the episodes. They roll out one a week. But it was like the 60s and the 70s and things like that. And it was talking about the role that, that music critics play and, and how how influential Rolling Stone could be as far as affecting whether or not albums got sold or whether bands you know, took off or, or not. Then I was watching on Netflix uh, a thing. It just dropped. It's um, Fran Lebowitz, who is a New York writer who makes her living by making appearances and stuff. And there, there's a, a seven-part feature with Martin Scorsese. And I was kind of watching that. And she got started as, as being a movie critic. You know, and they were talking about how in the 70s, you know, she was writing for these different publications and doing and and doing the the reviews of movies. And again, how back then people a a movie would open and people would wait for the newspaper to come out and then they'd run and they'd get all the different reviews and and good movie reviews. You know, if if a movie got good notices, well, it, it. it, it would do great box office. And if it got routinely panned by some of the influential critics, it would die. Now, that wasn't always the case, but but critics of movies could make a, a huge deal. Today, in the Chicago Tribune, the the Tribune's restaurant critic, his name is Phil Vettel, he's, he's been their restaurant critic for 41 years. That, that's that's how the guy made a living going around to writing about restaurants for 41 years not not a not a bad gig I guess if, if you can get it and and today is his last column he's, he's retiring after 41 years and he was just, it, and it's an interesting piece about how that has all evolved over the years well all these things coming together have, have got me thinking there was a time where the the critics whether it's the restaurant critics or the movie critics or the music critics, or the theater critics, you know, the people that showed up on, on opening night at the theater, where their reviews could could make or break a show. It could make or break a movie. It could make or break a, a restaurant. It could make or break a band or, or an album. Th- there was a time where people really paid attention to this. And I, I was kind of thinking about that. My premise is that that time has, has passed. And I guess I don't. I mean, do people really wait to see? And this, I don't mean to like like knock restaurants, but but do people really wait to see? Okay, who who the, the local newspaper, the, the restaurant critics, gone out and eaten at a restaurant? Is that really? Oh, you know, she likes it or she doesn't like it. We're, we're going to go or we're not going to go. Or you know, I, I just I read a review of this movie online or something, and the person liked it or didn't like it. I, I just. To, to me, the day of the critic, as far as an influencer, I, I think has has passed. And I guess more more likely, for example, like a restaurant, 
if you want to look at reviews, rather than somebody who's written a review in, in the paper or done a review on television, you know, with, with Yelp out there nowadays, I mean, everybody's the reviewer. You know, if you're trying to check out whether something's good or not, you you go to Rotten Tomatoes and you look at the comments about whether the movie is good. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The role of the professional critic, whether it's music or movies or plays or restaurants, does it matter anymore? Do people pay attention to that? Do Are these people influencers, or has, has that day just kind of passed? And I guess my argument would be, I think it's it's sort of passed. Like I say, if you know, if, if you're thinking about going to a restaurant, all right, what, what are you likely to do? Well, you're likely to go online, maybe, and you're again, you'll, you'll look at the Yelp reviews or, or things like that, maybe if you want to do that. But but the idea of gee, I, I've got to wait till I've got to wait till this publication comes out because I want to see if the reviewer liked the new Bruce Springsteen record or not. Eh. Don't think that happens anymore. 855-616-1620. Do you pay attention to those sort of reviews, or is that just something that, well, gone gone by the wayside? We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. 855-616-1620. Mike on the northwest side. Hi, Mike. Hi. Good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? Okay, are, 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 have reviews jumped the shark? Yes, I think they have. My my personal opinion is I trust not the critics for the restaurants and newspapers. I trust uh, friends that have a uh, personal experience and word of mouth and uh, my own personal experience. Uh, what these guys do in the restaurant industry is uh, their own opinion. If they uh, have a grudge against somebody or whatever, they might write a bad review. I trust my friends and word them off. Yeah, I think most people are, are like that. Thanks for the call, Mike. I, I think, I, you know, and it's, if I'm, and I'm, I, I will, I admit, if, if I'm looking at, at buying a, a product, a, a consumer good, like what did I do? Um, a, a few months ago, I, I wanted to get one of those portable heaters for our deck, and the, the the price range that you you could buy a portable heater for a hundred bucks and you could buy a portable heater for a thousand bucks you know the things that you see in restaurant patios and stuff I want one for our deck and I, I know portable heaters from Adam's Cat you know I, I just I, I have no idea and so I'm trying to figure out okay what's what's the difference. What's the real difference between a portable heater that's 150 bucks and a portable heater that's a thousand bucks? And so I'm I'm reading the reviews that that people have to try to 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 figure that out and you know ultimately decide you know where to go. And you have to understand, of course, when you when you read those reviews that you you can't take any one review as, as gospel because people have all sorts of different agendas and things. But I find that to be helpful. But as far as if there's if there's a new movie that, that's coming out, and I think that I want to see it, um, the, the idea that that some movie critic, you know, has has panned it, well, that that's not going to stop me from wanting to to go see it, and it's not going to encourage me. And the same thing, I guess, is true with restaurants, and the same thing is true with with book reviews. Now, one of the things I, I like, I am an avid reader, and one of the things that I I will do in the Wall Street Journal on Saturday. They have they have a couple pages that are devoted to book reviews, and, and I read those religiously. And the New York Times on Sunday has its its New York Times review of books, and so they review a bunch of books. Now, what 
I, it's, I, I will read those, but not with the idea that, hey, I want to, this reviewer liked this book or didn't like the book. I'll read them with the idea of trying to find out what's new that's out there, because I, I don't keep track of what the latest book releases are. But if I'll read a book and say, oh, such and such an author is coming out with a new one, or this is a book about you know X thing, hey, it kind of sounds interesting, that'll incline, uh, then it, it's more like just to find out that it's out there, as opposed to, you know, gee, somebody that you know wrote this book reviewing such and such, you know, likes it or doesn't like it. I, I don't find myself paying attention to that. Jeff, I no longer look at viewer or reader ratings, especially for books. The spectrum of reviews from one to five stars is all over the map these days. Some good reviews do pop up from time to time, but for the most part, the only time I look at reviews is, like I was just saying, when I'm buying a consumer product, anything with a shelf life, then I might be interested in those types of situations. Jeff, for movies, no, but for restaurants, definitely yes on critics' reviews. Um, if the reviewer for the Journal Sentinel gives a thumbs up or a thumbs down, it matters to me. Huh. And, and I, I don't mean to be personal about this because I, I don't know the, the Journal Sentinel's res, restaurant reviewer, um, Dennis Ghetto, who preceded her, I, I knew on a personal level. See, but I guess the problem I have is people have individual, people have different tastes. And um, I think a lot of times one of the problems with reviewers, whether it's a movie reviewer or a restaurant reviewer or whatever, is that they tell you what you should like, not what real people like and that's that's the kind of the best way i explain it and 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 because they they have i I don't know maybe it's because of the training or or whatever or that they think they have to pretend that they know more than people but it's like well i was at this place and i didn't like the sauce or or they had all these these frou-frou type of things and i'm sitting there thinking huh that might be wonderful but the average person they're not going to end up caring about that well anyhow but bottom line is I, i think one of the things with the internet and, and social media there is it's allowed us all to be reviewers. And so maybe, again, from the perspective of a music reviewer or a movie reviewer or a restaurant reviewer or a theater reviewer, maybe people still read it for entertainment. But as far as the, the social influencer that maybe this restaurant critic was, when he started 41 years ago, or that Rolling Stone was when it started, or that movie critics were back in the 60s and 70s. I I just, I I think those days have, have passed. All right, when we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds. Stick around.